Sark tees it up, and a save is made by Bobrovsky. Nelson, Barzell with the open net, and he scores! Hi, and welcome to the Locked On Islanders podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Gil Martin. I'm an Islanders columnist and historian. And I wrote the book Ice Wars, which covers the complete history of the Islanders' rivalry with the Rangers from 1972 to the modern era. All right, everybody, welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Locked On Islanders podcast. Lots to talk about as we continue to be in a bit of a holding pattern here with regard to the NHL season. We do have an update about where the remaining Islander games will be played if and when the season resumes. We also have part two of our interview with author Matthew Blitner and talking about his book, Unforgettable New York Islanders Games and Moments from the Press Box, Ice and Front Office. Don't forget, if you have a question, a comment, a topic you'd like us to discuss Please shoot us an email, the email address, LockedOnIslanders at gmail.com. And if you leave your name and where you're from, we're happy to mention you on the air when we discuss your topic or question. Uh, you could also follow the show on Twitter at LockedOnIsles. And you could follow me, Gil Martin, on Twitter at IceWars, N-Y-R-V-S-N-Y-I. We'll keep you up to date on all the latest news. Around the world of the New York Islanders. All right, uh, not a lot new today, but what we did find out is that if and when games resume, and, you know, that's still up in the air, obviously, right now, but any future Islanders home games are going to be played at the Nassau Coliseum. Yes, there were a couple of more games scheduled for the Barclays Center, but the word coming out of the Islanders' camp is that unless those games are played on the date originally scheduled, that they will now be moved to the Nassau Coliseum. So the remaining two games at Barclays Center, if they're made up at a future date, not on the date that they're actually originally scheduled to be played, they'll be at the old barn in Uniondale, rather than in Brooklyn, which means, for all intents and purposes, it is 97% certain that the New York Islanders have more or less played their final game at the Barclays Center. And look, I've also noted that the Barclays Center did serve a very important purpose for the New York Islanders. Without the Barclays Center... Quite honestly, the Islanders would have left the New York metropolitan area. Without the Barclays Center, there is no way there is a Belmont. There is no way that there were games again at the Nassau Coliseum after the renovation took place. So 
Yes, Barclays Center was imperfect. It was not conveniently located. The ice was not, you know, up to snuff as far as the quality of the ice for NHL hockey games. Yeah, you had the obstructed view seats. And to me, the most minor of all the complaints, yeah, the scoreboard wasn't located in the middle of the ice. You know what? If you could see the scoreboard and it tells you everything you need to see, who cares if it's over a blue line or the red line? It really is kind of a secondary thing, although it did look a little askew at times, but that's the least of the problems. But at the end of the day, the Barclays Center certainly served its purpose. And ironically, the Islanders, you know, they end up losing that last game that was played at the Barclays Center. And, you know, I guess not a lot of fanfare because nobody knew at the time that it was indeed going to be the last game. And yeah, I I certainly preferred overall watching games at the Nassau Coliseum than I did at Barclays, mostly because of the difficulty getting to and from the arena. But at the same time, look, some great amenities at Barclays Center, the food certainly was an upgrade. The staff there was very, very helpful and friendly. And look, it was, at the very least, a modern NHL arena that, you know, again, not built for hockey, and that was a mistake made by the people who planned the arena and owned the arena, in my opinion. But at the end of the day, Barclays Center certainly did its job, kept this team on Long Island, And there were some good moments at the Barclays Center. The first one, obviously, that comes to mind uh, was the double overtime goal by John Tavares in the playoffs a few years back that gave the Islanders a series win over the Florida Panthers. And look, it was the first Islanders series victory since 1993, 23 years in between series wins for a franchise is a little bit too long, quite honestly, and at that point, you know, John Tavares was the team's captain, he was, at the time, their best player, here was a franchise, you know, starved for playoff success, hadn't had it since that memorable run, surprise run in 1993, all the way to the uh, Eastern Conference Finals, so many playoff disappointments after that, near misses, and then at the Barclays Center, double overtime, John Tavares swoops in, gets that game-winning goal, and essentially reestablishes a new era for the Islanders. The very fact that you hadn't won a playoff game in 23 years more or less said that this franchise was stuck in neutral to a large extent. And that playoff series win made a big difference for the New York Islanders. So uh, that to me was the most memorable moment. Certainly the first Rangers-Islanders game there was a big moment. And, you know, the Rangers could not win for a long time at the Barclays Center, and that is always a plus for Islander fans. So let's put the Barclays Center in our rearview mirror, thank it for keeping or helping to keep the team 
in the New York metropolitan area so it could return to Long Island, to Belmont, and uh, overall realizing now that there will be, barring any unforeseen changes, no more New York Islander games at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. All right, we're going to step aside. When we come back, we'll have this date in Islanders history, and we'll have part two of our interview with reporter and author Matthew Blitner. More to come here on the Locked On Islanders podcast. Okay, if you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans. But you may not know that Locked On Islanders is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Islander fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. And not just any podcast listener, a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Islander fans in a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses, so text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On Advertising success. Once again, text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for this date in Islanders history. We take you back to March 18th, 1986, a record crowd of 16,250 on hand at the Nassau Coliseum to see the Islanders host the New York Rangers. And this game got off to a quick start for the Islanders. First, it was Brent Sutter getting his 20th goal of the year from Bob Bourne and Dwayne Sutter at 424, and the Islanders took the early 1-0 lead. Then, with Mike Ridley of the Rangers in the penalty box for holding, Brent Sutter strikes again a power play goal, his second of the game, 21st of the year, from Bob Bourne and Paul Boudelier at 849, Islanders 2, and the Rangers nothing. The Rangers do get on the board, however, just 22 seconds after Sutter's second goal. Mike Ridley, his 21st of the year, from Larry Melnick at 9-11 of the first period, and it's a one-goal lead for the Isles. But the Islanders do not stand put. Just 30 seconds after Ridley's goal, Dennis Potvan gets his 19th of the year from Pat LaFontaine and Randy Boyd. Time of the goal, 9:41 At the end of the first period, the Islanders held a 3-1 lead over their New York City rivals. In the second period, the Islanders tacked on two more goals. First, Bob Bourne, his 15th from Brent Sutter at 156. That made the score 4-1 Islanders. And then the Islanders get a power play goal. Brian McClellan off for tripping. At 7.09 and 9.02 of the second period, Pat LaFontaine, his 26th from Boudelier and Pat Flatley at 9.02. Islanders 
after 40 minutes, had a commanding 5-1 lead. In the third period, the Islanders add to the lead even more. Mike Bossy gets his 53rd goal of the year from Steve Conroyd at 17:47. The Rangers tack on a goal in the final minute. George McPhee, future general manager in the National Hockey League, gets his fourth from Mike Allison at 19:06, and the final score. Islanders 6, Rangers 2. By the way, McPhee and Greg Gilbert dropping the gloves earlier in that third period as these two teams uh, faced off. John Van Beesbrook took the loss in this game, allowing five goals on just 23 shots. Glenn Hanlon allowing just one goal in 14 shots as they more or less split the game. The Islanders goaltender, Billy Smith, the Hall of Famer, He got the job done for the Islanders, 19 saves in just 21 shots. For the Islanders, Brent Sutter with a three-point night, two goals, one assist. Bob Bourne, a goal and two assists to also get to three points. Other multiple-point Islanders in this contest were Pat LaFontaine with one goal and one assist, and Paul Boudelier, who had a pair of helpers, For the Islanders, as far as shots on goal were concerned, Tomas Janssen led the way with five shots on goal, while Dennis Potvin and Clark Gillies each pitched in with four. Islanders finished the game with 37 shots on goal, and again, a sold-out Nassau Coliseum, a then-record crowd of 16,250 fans on hand, and as usual, you know, when you have a Rangers-Islanders matchup at the Coliseum, you got a divided crowd, a lot of Ranger fans there, a lot of Islander fans there, almost as entertaining to see what was going on in the stands at these games as it was to see uh, what was happening, and for the Islanders, it solidified third place in the Patrick division uh, at that point and got revenge because just two days earlier, the Rangers had defeated the Islanders at Madison Square Garden. The season series in 1985-86 ended up being split 3-3-1, each team winning three games and then one tie. So the Islanders get revenge for two nights earlier, end up evening up the season series, And uh, in this year, by the way, both the Rangers and the Islanders end up making the playoffs a strong showing overall for the New York Islanders. As far as the uh, plus-minus statistics were concerned, Dennis Potvan and Randy Boyd leading the way for the Islanders with plus-two ratings. So, A good night for the Islanders on this day after St. Patrick's Day, March the 18th, 1986, Islanders 6, Rangers 2, as we remember this date in Islanders history. All right, we are going to take a little break. When we return, we will have part two of my interview with author and sports writer Matthew Blitner, his book, Unforgettable New York Islanders, games, and moments from the press box, ice, and front office. Great interview. You're going to want to hear more of that. And uh, don't forget, part three of that interview, by the way, 
will come up on tomorrow's show when we will uh, talk a little bit about where the Islanders stand right now. So stay with us. More to come here on the Locked On Islanders podcast. And by the way, the Locked On Podcast Network wants to thank our listeners. And here is a limited time offer for us. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code LOCKEDONNBA. So once again, that's Postmates, $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. So to start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app and use the code LOCKEDONNBA. All right, here is part two of my interview with sports writer and author Matthew Blitner talking about his book, Unforgettable New York Islanders, Games and Moments from the Press Box, Ice, and Front Office. You, through this book, cover some of the great moments in Islanders history. Uh, you know, Mike Bossy's 50 goals in 50 games, the Easter epic, uh, the, you know, the the penalty shot goal in the 2002 playoffs against uh, Toronto. Do, do you have a favorite out of, out of all of these moments that different people re- recollected to you? Well, again, everyone, I loved everyone's stories because they took their time out to share the stories and I don't want to be disrespectful to any of them. But one story that I certainly found, I don't know, I'll, I guess I'll call it unique was from Eric Thompson, who is Brian Thompson's father. Brian is writes for NHL.com, currently covering the Islanders. And Eric was an Islander beat writer for the Daily News back at the tail end of the dynasty for the second two cups. He missed the first two. And in their fourth consecutive cup win, when they beat the Oilers in a sweep in 83, in game four, you know, the Islanders are up, then becomes a bit of a nail-biter towards the end, and Billy Smith is in goal, and as Thompson recalls, at one point uh, in the third period, Billy Smith goes down as if he gets shot. He literally goes down to the ice as if something horrific has happened to him. He's got to have some horrible injury, and he was never touched. And Thompson, as well as the other writers in the press box at the time, all were looking at each other going, what happened to him? You know, he, he didn't get touched. There's not a player within feet of him. You know, what happened? And the Oilers got called for a penalty that essentially ended any chance of them coming back to tie or take the lead in the game. Yes, they were down 3 nothing in the series. And, you know, who's to say that the Islanders couldn't still win the game or anything? But it was really a, I don't want to call it a turning point, but you never know what happens if Billy Smith doesn't have his, uh, his acting job in that one. He was uh, definitely Oscar-worthy at that particular moment. And after the game, he uh, he sort of deflected the questions about it just by saying, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So he neither denied nor confirmed it. But I found that interesting that a player who's, you know, got such this reputation for, yes, he had a reputation for drawing his crease very strongly and everything. But, you know, maybe in today's NHL, that would sort of be unheard of. Yeah, and in today's NHL, you risk a uh, unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for diving as well. But, uh, you know, you also have a couple of names in here who people associate with New York area sports. 
but may not associate with the Islanders. For example, John Sterling. Yes, John Sterling. So a lot of people don't remember. He actually, obviously, he was with the Nets. Uh, in basketball, but he was also with the Islanders in the mid to late 70s. And Sterling told me a number of stories, some of which made it into the book, some of which didn't. And he really, you know, he was very fond of his time with the Islanders, fond of his relationships with Al Arbor and Bill Torrey and a number of the other media members. And he was constantly going back and forth because the Nets were playing and the Nets were good at the time. So one day he'd be at uh, an Ireland game, the next day he'd have to travel somewhere in the country for a Nets game, and the next day he'd have to travel back and forth. And he just really brought the energy and everything, and you could really tell just from the way he called Islander games, you could almost see if you're a Yankees fan now, you could see the origins of a lot of his calls to the Yankees from his time with the Islanders. And then another name that people more associate with the Rangers than the Islanders is Neil Smith, and yet people forget that he got his start in scouting with the New York Islanders. Not only did he get his start with the Islanders as a scout, he did it for free for a year. They didn't even pay him for the first year here in Neil Smith. They paid him the second year, but the first year he did it completely for free. And look, you know, you got to do what you got to do to break into the industry. And, you know, we'll forget, we'll wave aside his, I think it was a 45-day term as Islander GM a little over a decade ago. But he really he scouted during the cup run during the dynasty era, and that was really significant because that set him up with relationships that have lasted a lifetime and lasted to help him get to different points in his career where he was the GM of the Rangers, where he was a, an on-air analyst and all that stuff. So it was really fun to hear Smith talk about an era in his career when that most people probably never even knew about. And, you know, one thing I love about this book, you really cover the gamut of Islanders history, going all the way back to that first season in 1972, up until the modern era when you yourself was, co- were, were, you know, were covering this team. Yes, well, this book gave me a big opportunity to actually encompass the whole history you know, my Rangers book, there's not really too many people around from 1926 who are going to be able to tell you anything. Let's just face facts on that. So a full Rangers history wasn't going to happen. A Devils, you know, with my Devils book, the full history, you know, the Devils, their history is more of in pockets. They're good for a stretch of years, and then they're not so good, and then they're good again. The Islanders have had sort of a, and I know they've gone, you know, there's stretches of time where they went without making the playoffs, but the Islanders have been pretty much a consistent franchise after the first two years in which they really didn't win at all. But from 1975 on, they were pretty solid all the way through up until even last year. So, you know, again, the connections that I had with people who cover any sports now who, you know, maybe know someone from back then were really helpful in being able to just connect all the generations because, I didn't want to focus on just one year, one era in Islander history. I wanted all Islander fans to see this book and for to appeal to all of them, whether they were watching in 72 or watching last year in 2019. So um glad to been able to really encompass everything. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got the early years. And, and, you know, 
Chester Hawley, who was the PR man the first year the Islanders were in existence, I mean, he he had some great stories uh, back in the day. I, I remember reading some uh, some articles, you know, that he talked about way back when the team just started to get good, and they talked about what it was like that you know first couple of seasons. And the story you have in here, uh, you know, that relates to him is just unbelievable. All right. Well, Hawley Chester the Third was a it was a very enthusiastic PR director. He was the first eye on this PR director. And as you mentioned, you know, with his story, at the end of that first season, the Islanders were banged up. A couple players were pitched. They only had maybe 14, 15 guys who were able to suit up for a particular game in which they were going into Minnesota to face the North Stars. And, you know, lo and behold, he had been a collegiate hockey player, so playing hockey wasn't a foreign concept to him. And Bill Torrey approached him and said, listen, you know, we're going to need you to suit up and just do your best. And he had just had a big meal. He didn't have a skate. He didn't have any equipment with him. So I don't want to say he begged out of it, but he, he deflected it and managed to get Torrey to say, no, you know, he's not going to do it. And so he's watching the game from the press box, and the Islander goalie takes a penalty. And as we all know, goalies don't leave the crease to go to the penalty box. Someone's not serve the penalty. So that would have been, as Hawley was watching, if they sent the player into the penalty box, he realized, no, that would have been him. He would have had to have crossed the ice, go into the penalty box, serve the time, and then get back onto the ice and officially log in as a player in the game and then go back onto the bench. And, you know, I don't know. We don't know if any PR director has ever done that before or since. Uh, I can't imagine that's happened anytime now. Uh, we have enough controversy with the emergency backup goaltenders. Uh, and back then, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, you know, it wasn't inconceivable that a coach might activate himself uh, like the Rangers' Lester Patrick did at one point. But a PR director, uh, this might have been a unique situation. And uh, he passed up the opportunity willingly, of course, but it would have been a heck of a story if he really did get in the game because at that point, just, I guess anything goes. All right, don't forget, tomorrow you can hear part three of my interview with Matthew Blitner. And in part three, we more or less discuss contemporary Islanders issues. He is, after all, covering the team right now. And we'll talk a little bit about the state of the Islanders as of the present time, or at least before play was disrupted right now. All right. That wraps up this edition of Locked On Islanders. Now, tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of Locked On NHL. Have a great day, everybody. Let's go, Islanders. And we'll be back tomorrow with more great Islanders coverage right here on the Locked On Islanders podcast.